And thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we find out how Jimmy Carter, a future president, came to Canada as a young naval officer back in 1952 to help clean up following a partial nuclear meltdown north of Ottawa and how that event would shape the future leader. Should we be updating children's literature to reflect modern sensibilities? Changes made to Roald Dahl's classics such as Matilda and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory have caused a lot of controversy and accusations of censorship. Is that fair? Ukrainian Member of Parliament Kira Rudik joins us from Kyiv as we approach the one-year anniversary of Russia's further invasion of her country. We get her perspective on the year that's been. But first, a 22-year-old Toronto man faces a second-degree murder charge accused of shooting and killing one of three armed men who broke into his house in the middle of the night. So how does Canada's criminal code view potential self-defense cases such as this one? It's not clear-cut. This is an interesting story out of Toronto. Now, there are some questions here to which we do not know the answer. But the broad strokes of it are, at least according to police reports and the reporting on it, three men broke into a home uh, near Toronto in a community called Milton at about five in the morning, attacked one of the residents, a woman who lives there, the mom of the other resident, and... The resident, the 22-year-old Toronto area man, uh, says that's what happened at his home early on Sunday. Now, Ali Mian is then accused of having shot one of the alleged intruders, killing him. The other two suspects apparently fled and have not been caught. Police say there were multiple gunshots fired in the home. Who fired them at whom is not yet clear. Police have charged one suspect with possession of an unauthorized weapon. Ali Mian, the 22-year-old homeowner uh, who is living in the home, is a registered gun owner. Now, again, this is where the question comes in. It is Ali Mian who now faces a second-degree murder charge. Here's his lawyer speaking to Global News earlier this week. It was a home invasion. Intruders in his house, armed, uh, attacked his mother, and uh, he acted in self-defense. That's his lawyer's version of events. We don't know fully what if there is more to this story or not, but... It has raised a lot of questions about why he is being charged if, as he alleges, he was simply protecting his home and his mom against people who entered his home in the middle of the night, armed, apparently. Now, this incident comes less than two months after Canada's self-defense laws made headlines in Halifax. Two men were invading a home there, police allege, when a resident fatally stabbed one of them. The stabbing was ruled a homicide, but no charges have been laid yet in relation to that death. Um, It's prompted questions about what force Canadians can legally use when someone invades their home, and other forms of self-defense for that matter. Joining me now with more on this is Toronto-based defence lawyer Rob McDonald. He's not involved in the earlier case I was talking about in Toronto. Rob, thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me on the show. I'm sure this is a question that often comes up in these circumstances where a lot of, I guess, what our knowledge of these would be is sort of derived from TV and movies and so forth about exactly what self-defense means. But maybe you could walk uh, the rest of us through what it means in this case. Well, I think you're spot on when you bring up uh, TV and movies because a lot of what we see is American-based and, and the United States has very different laws in this area, state to state, but generally speaking, in the United States, someone's home is their castle and they can stand their ground. In Canada, the law is different. How is it different? I mean, there are articles I know within the criminal code that apply to this, but what do they, what do they rest on? 
Well, essentially, in, in Canada, uh, the self-defense provisions of the criminal code allow someone to be acquitted of uh, a crime like murder or assault or whatever the charge might be if the force um, that they use is proportionate to the force that they uh, feel is being used against them or is actually being used against them. And on top of that, uh, if they can establish that the force that they use that uh, would make up the ingredients of the offense is being used for the purpose of defending themselves or defending others. And then the third step is that the force used, uh, the act committed, must be reasonable in the circumstances. And that's one of the most contentious uh, prongs of the of the test, so to speak. Yeah, because I, I suspect it'd be difficult to prove reasonable in that, uh, or one way or another, by the way, in that circumstances. What questions would you have in a case such as this one? Well, I think you'd want to really focus in on uh, the ballistics, the layout of the uh, of the shooting, and what police could establish in terms of the positioning of the parties. You know, if someone comes at you through your door with a machete and you you stab them to death, uh, that's probably uh, you're probably using force that uh, at least a good criminal lawyer could establish was reasonable in the circumstances. However, if someone has broken in your house and committed a crime that we hear is alleged in this Milton case. Um, that doesn't give someone carte blanche to uh, then use whatever force is necessary. So, if, for example, the police believe that the uh, culprits of a home invasion were were then fleeing uh, and they were shot while running away, uh, then they would probably have their reasonable grounds to believe a crime had, had been committed or at least enough to, to lay a charge. I guess that's where the the confusion comes in somewhat in the popular imagination. Just because someone breaks into your home doesn't give you the right to do to do it doesn't give you the right to do much. I mean, beyond I suppose call the police, but it certainly doesn't doesn't give you the right to injure them or to kill them for that matter. Well, yeah, I mean, there's um, there's case law in this area. It's it sort of goes on a case by case basis. I had a case that was. Uh, two years ago in, in uh, Ontario, where a client of mine was uh, um, at home and three home invaders broke in and tied up him and his girlfriend and he shot and killed two of them and he was charged and I defended him and eventually his charges were thrown out. But sometimes the police lay charges, not because they're, uh, you know, they're playing the role of a judge and they can, they firmly believe that they can establish proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Their job is to simply uh, determine whether or not there's reasonable and probable grounds to to uh, believe that a crime may have been committed. And if they if they get to that standard, they'll lay a charge and they'll let the judges and the crown prosecutors down the road sort things out. So in your case, your client was clearly charged given the circumstances. But what what would have uh, what did the case hinge on in terms of? Uh, why it was ultimately decided that he uh, that the charges would be thrown out. It didn't go to trial, is that what you're saying? Well, it went through uh, a lengthy preliminary inquiry. Uh, mm-hmm. He uh, was actually held in jail. It was very unfortunate. And uh, the, the, his name is Cameron Gardner. It was a case that got a lot of attention around Ontario at the time because he was held in jail for several months. He was of poor health, and uh, he really had lived through a horrendous ordeal. 
two of the three home invaders in, in that case, uh, as they say, were shot and killed by him. And the third one has since been convicted of the home invasion robbery. So I would have appreciated it. I know he would have appreciated it if there had been, uh, given the circumstances, if there had been a few more courtesies extended at the front end, for example, that uh, if you'd been just granted bail um, and based on the clearly tribal issues of self-defense, he wasn't, though, and he had to go through a contested preliminary inquiry where uh, we argued whether or not he should be going to trial on murder, which was the charge he faced, or manslaughter. And we knocked it down to manslaughter. The judge ruled that he could only go to trial on manslaughter. And then eventually it started the wheels coming off and the prosecutors dropped the charges against him. So in this case, the, from Milton recently, you know, it might go through a similar process where prosecutors sort of hum and haw over things and, and look at the facts and come to a determination where they too might decide to drop the charges. But um, there's still a lot that remains to be seen. If you put on your prosecutor's, your prosecutor's hat here or your police hat, uh, not to ask you to, to do too much acting here, but what is it that they're concerned about? What, what is it that they look at the case such as this one or the one that you were involved in? From their point of view, what, it is that, what is it that they're trying to enforce and or protect here? Well, so, so in the United States, so the, the DA's office will play a role often in determining whether or not to lay charges. And in Canada... Typically, it's the police that determine whether or not someone's charged, and then the prosecutor takes a few weeks uh, or months even before the prosecutor really gets all the police intel, which we call disclosure, uh, the evidence, and then they can start just making determinations. So at this point in time, uh, you know, the police have decided to lay a charge. The, the Crown prosecutors will later look at this case and determine, you know, is there evidence that the person who was shot was retreating? You know, is there evidence that would suggest that this had risen to a level that was beyond uh, reasonable force in the circumstances? And again, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, a section in the criminal code that goes through sort of a, a list of factors that they have to consider, or rather the trier of fact would have to consider in terms of uh, making out self-defense in a case like this. And it's, they're complicated and they're, they're very case-specific. Bob McDonald is with us this half hour. He's a defense lawyer based in Toronto. We're talking about self-defense. Um, there is a case out of on, near Toronto over the weekend. Milton, Ontario is a suburb. Uh, a 22-year-old man was a uh, victim of an alleged home invasion and uh, fired on one of the, at least one of those intruders, and that person was killed. He's now been charged with second-degree murder. So we're talking about that case tonight. What exactly does it mean? Uh, Morris in Alberta says, if someone breaks in my home, am I supposed to let them do what they want? And I guess that's kind of uh, where this all boils down to, right? Where is that line? We've been talking about that a bit. Uh, I, I guess a lot of people wonder where that line is, uh, uh, Rob, when it comes to these sorts of events. You mentioned earlier that if you came in with a machete and you also had a knife that that was sort of equivalent if you had a gun then i guess it it, it it is all it all depends right it all depends on the interpretation of those statutes in the criminal code that's right and that's right it's section 34 of the of the criminal code uh that, that applies to the defense of the person and, and again you know the the factors that one must make out is that force is being used against them or a threat of force and that the act uh, that they did in reply uh, 
uh, was for the purpose of defending or protecting themselves or someone else. In this case, it could be the accused or his mother. And then lastly, the, the act that they committed is reasonable in the circumstances. So, you know, someone stumbles in your house drunk one night and you uh, uh, hit them over the head with a baseball bat when they're clearly uh, not, you know, uh, posing a big threat to you, uh, even though they've entered into your home. The, uh, that might be deemed uh, an unreasonable response. And, and in this case, we're dealing with, you know, a shooting death and, and, uh, the police have reason to believe that, uh, uh, you know, that this act might not have been reasonable in the circumstances. Right. Or at least not to the extent where they don't want to absolutely make sure. Right. And, and, you know, one of the factors that, that, uh, courts have looked at is, you know, has this, is this, uh, gone beyond self-defense? Is this an act of rage? Is this an act of malice of vengeance of lashing out? And those aren't uh, the codified factors that are considered, but those are what some of the cases have sort of hinged on. So recently, is, the Supreme yeah. Court has has looked at, um, you know, the overall behavior of the accused and whether or not it's reasonable, not just the, the, uh, the specific behavior that might uh, give rise to a charge. How does it manifest itself in other forms of self-defense? I know there, I believe there was a case not long ago in front of the Supreme Court about car theft, about just how much you can do to protect your property within the confines of the criminal code um, and, and how that manifests itself. And I, I guess in the heat of the moment, specifically during a home invasion, uh, one isn't exactly thinking straight, right? Your first instinct may be to do something retaliatory to try to protect what you think is rightfully yours. But again, as you've pointed out, there are, it's not quite, it's not black and white. Right, right. And I mean, a lot of people, um, you know, you mentioned a query from Alberta, I believe, where people say, you know, well, what am I to do? And, and um, you know, it's, it is not black and white. And people need to recognize that there are limits to the force that they can use and they can't simply vent and they cannot um, sort of indulge their own uh, feelings of, of vengeance. That's that's not what the criminal code would approve of. And and um, you know, uh, many times people, particularly you know, you mentioned this, this case of of auto thefts, and there's been a ton in the city of Toronto where I'm from. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a massive massive problem now for the city. And you know, you can imagine people the rage that they would have if they could overcome or overtake their um, the wrongdoer, the person who's trying to deprive them of their vehicle. And, you know, uh, even fairly well-adjusted individuals might really lose their temper. And and, and if they've got someone uh, in a compromised position, they may uh, be tempted to inflict very serious bodily harm. And then you've back, we're back to reasonableness of force, of your force, right? That it all boils down to whether your response is reasonable to the act that is being committed or at least the threat against you. And, and, and I guess that can be, a, that's a, that's a pretty, that can be a pretty fuzzy concept. Right. And, and you know, some of the factors that, that have been considered are, are whether or not the accused has prior violent encounters with uh, the victim uh, or, you know, the victim. The, the, so in this case, we're dealing with uh, home invaders and Milton. So it's tough to call them victims, but you know, if the accused has had, uh, prior acts of uh, encounters that were violent, you know, it might 
move in favor of self-defense if he knows, for example, or if his defense lawyer could establish that he'd had uh, physical confrontations with these people in the past, that they'd threatened him in the past, or demonstrated their willingness to use force in the past, then in this case, uh, if he had that sort of track record with them, that could go to um, self-defense. And, and conversely, if if it could be demonstrated that, that on the on the contrary, he'd been an aggressor in the past, he really uh, had no history of being fearful, you know, those are th- things that uh, a prior fact might might look into and consider. Yeah, we've had it. We've had another text in. Car is nothing. Insurance will pay out when someone's in your home. They have crossed a major line, black and white, to me. Uh, certainly, in, in the case that we've just seen in Milton, I, I suspect that will all be taken into consideration. We don't know if there was a history there between those who entered that home and the person who was firing those shots inside. Uh, but I imagine that someone entering someone's home in the middle of the night, armed, will be taken into consideration in this case, despite the fact that charges have been laid. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, there's uh, uh, some of the case law research I did when I was when I was defending someone in this exact situation. You know, there were cases where where I remember one that involved a, a young person within the meaning of the Youth Criminal Justice Act, who actually uh, his attackers were in the process of fleeing and he um, he stabbed one of the one of the uh, invaders while they were fleeing, and he was still acquitted under self-defense. So, right. you know, there's not hard and fast rules that if, for example, the the person who's broken in your home, if they're in the middle of retreating, it necessarily means that self-defense uh, doesn't have an air of reality. There, there's it's a very complicated uh, case by case analysis that uh, these trials, in fact, must do. Must go through rather, and and when it's a jury, you know, people that are are deciding these cases and they're bank tellers and bus drivers and people that have no legal training, some of these concepts are very difficult for them to understand when they're deciding whether or not to acquit someone or or convict someone in a situation like this. Well, Rob McDonald, thank you for uh, for making it a little less complicated tonight. Much appreciated. Thank you kindly for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Speaking of someone who would have seen, possibly seen some snow back in the winter of 19, uh, late, late 1952, early 1953, was former president Jimmy Carter. Now, over the weekend, uh, he's 98 now, over the weekend it was announced by his foundation uh, that the president will be spending his days in hospice care, that he's going to forego any further medical treatment and that he's simply going to see out his days surrounded by his family uh, in hospice, which would usually uh, gives one the impression that he knows that his days are now not many, and he wants to spend them in a way that befits uh, happiness um, and surrounded by his loved ones. It's remarkable to think of how much his legacy has changed over the many, many years. Of course, he was probably the first president I remember really well. I mean, I have vague memories of Nixon some memories of Gerald Ford, but not many. And Carter, to me, was the first, just like Trudeau was the first prime minister I was fully cognizant of, uh, Pierre Trudeau. Uh, Jimmy Carter was the first president I was fully cognizant of. And it was a reminder of sort of, uh, even when you're young, of the cruelty of politics, just because of how quickly uh, his career, his 
his time as president came to an end and Ronald Reagan swept to power in 1980. There was the Iran hostage crisis. There were all sorts of things that went on under Carter that, uh, you know, that basically uh, prevented him from winning another term, even though, as it turned out, he had a far more, in many ways, a far more impressive career before and after he was president. There's not many people you could say about that. You could say that about. But he came to Canada in 1952 as a young naval officer. Uh, James Carter, Jimmy, um, arrived at Chalk Farm, Chalk Farm at um, at Chalk River, north of Ottawa, uh, where there was a, a nuclear reactor. It was the first nuclear accident around the world at one of these kinds of facilities. They were brand new at the time. The accident took place on December 12, 1952. A series of failures led to a brief surge, melting some of the fuel rods in the reactor and uh, maxing out. Uh, by about three times the facility's power. So no one was killed, no one was seriously injured, but contamination was closely monitored in the aftermath. And to do that, a team came up from the U.S., quite a large team as a matter of fact, to dismantle parts or to help dismantle parts of the facility. And amongst them was future President Jimmy Carter. And in some ways, that experience would help shape the, the person and then the president that Jimmy Carter would become, and much more. It certainly um, gave him a trip to Canada, gave him a better understanding of Canada in some ways and how to work with Canada and how and how Canadians and Americans could work together. Well, to join us uh, to explain more about this event and the implications that it had is Arthur Milnes. He's author of 98 Reasons to Thank Jimmy Carter, um, and it was a tribute. He was also a former speechwriter to uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, as well as working uh, with Brian Mulroney. And he joins me now. Arthur Milnes, thank you. Oh, thanks for sharing your evening with me there, Ben. I mean, I think in retrospect, we realize we have a lot more to thank Jimmy Carter for than simply his presidency, which is not always the case with former presidents. Right. Uh, but he came to this country at a very young age. And I guess we've been talking a lot about this incident back in 1952 and just how formative it may have been for him at the time. But yet another uh, feather in his very, very feathered cap for, for Jimmy <laughs> Carter. What happened back then? Well, uh, Canada's research reactor at Chalk River near uh, Ottawa had a nuclear accident. Uh, there was a coolant problem, a small explosion, and uh, radioactive, you know, water came out, and there was great concerns. Right, Canada was supplying a lot of the enriched uranium for the U.S. nuclear program uh, as the Cold War started. So this was a pretty important place to both Canadians and Americans and the British as well. And when news hit, a young guy from Plains, Georgia, named Jimmy Carter, he was a naval lieutenant, and he was the reactor officer on what would become the second U.S. nuclear submarine called the USS Swordfish. And he was based in Schenectady, New York, because that's where General Electric was, and that's where they were building the reactor for his submarine. So news arrived, and Lieutenant Carter was put in charge of a crew of about 20 people, and off they went to uh, Chalk River. Now, Jimmy Carter likes to tell it that nobody knew they were coming, and, and no Americans knew they were leaving. And they faced a daunting and scary task, which was they trained over and over on mock-ups of the reactor and the reactor room. And they had approximately 90 seconds each to go in there and help clean up. And they were given uh, protective suits, in quotes, (laughs) because uh, they received today the amount of radiation that that, no way, but they, they were cooked pretty good. 
And President Carter will tell you how for the next six months or so, he and his men were tested for uh, radioactivity and he had uh, his urine was radioactive for a long time. And Republicans would say it still is. He always likes to say that, yes, the doctors told him he wouldn't have children. And then Amy came along. But it, in recent years, it's been fun to watch. You know, he's in his late 90s. And a year or so ago, the Ottawa Historical Society put out a Facebook post on Jimmy Carter's role at Chalk River. And somebody tweeted it and it went viral. All of America was told a sort of exaggerated version that Jimmy Carter had personally saved Ottawa or the capital of Canada from a uh, nuclear holocaust. Yeah, what what? A, but it, even the fact that that's what he was doing. I mean, I don't know yeah. if many people knew that was what he had done, and mm-hmm. he done he done so much both before and after becoming president that it's it was it was it, it was easy to imagine him having done that as a young man. Uh, and then Three Mile Island happens during yes. his presidency. So and what what he walked away with from that experience in Chalk River must have informed so much of how America, how he handled America's first and only at this point, major nuclear incident. Yeah, one of his best friends, uh, Dr. Peter Bourne, uh, was a friend and advisor, scientific advisor to President Carter when he was in the White House. And he told me once in an interview that the incident had a profound effect on his friend in the sense that, you know, really for the first time uh, as a young man, the future president came in contact with the dangers of nuclear power. At the same time, Carter's a scientist. And he wasn't scared of it. He respected it, obviously, after Chalk River. But he, you'll remember, like you referenced uh, Three Mile Island, all his advisors said, don't go near the place. And off he went. Yep. And he got actually made fun of for the pictures of him standing there in his rubber boots. But he did the right thing. You know? And he'd so, seen it before. I mean, he, he. I guess that's the part of the history that's that's so fascinating is that he had he had encountered so few people had encountered something of that magnitude. And here he had been in Canada uh, you know, 27 years earlier, facing something not entirely similar, but at least in the same ballpark. Yeah, of course. It's also for Canadians. It's just this this nice little tidbit of a future president, one that turned out to be one that uh, most Canadians greatly admire, had this rare and unique connection to our country. Arthur Milnes is with us uh, this half hour. He is a public historian. He's author of a book called 98 Reasons to Thank Jimmy Carter. And we're talking about the many reasons to think and uh, talk about Jimmy Carter tonight. He's, of course, uh, announced publicly that he'll uh, opt for hospice care at this point of his life. He is 98 now, and there's been a lot of tributes coming out to him uh, over the past few days. So his relationship with Canada was not only formed back in 1952 when he responded to that Shock River incident, it would also certainly, I would imagine, come in, um, play an important role when the Iran hostage crisis begins to happen. And we know the story of the uh, the infamous Canadian caper, uh, as, as popularized in Argo, the movie, the Academy Award winning movie as well. Yeah, President Carter was really mad at the movie. He went to the movie, he told me. And in his speech here at Queen's, uh, university, he he made a special point. Uh, once a politician, always a politician, and he got great cheers. Though he said it was a good one, gave all the credit to the Americans, where most of it should have gone to Canada. And as, as you can you can imagine, his crowd here uh, that went over pretty well. And folks have to remember that the Canadian ambassador to Iran, Ken Taylor, uh, his wife in particular, and the entire embassy staff put their very lives at risk to shelter six of our American friends. And 
President Carter, obviously, and I would agree from my studies, that uh, was probably the high moment in Canadian-American relations in my lifetime. And when he spoke about it at my book launch, it was in front of an audience of Canadians, and he actually choked up and teared up, and he had to stop for a while. He called it the single greatest moment in his presidency. And like I said, very, very emotional. As a Canadian, it was a very special moment for us as Canadians to hear this gratitude from a uh, U.S. president. You couldn't have heard a pin drop, as they say, uh, when uh, President Carter spoke about that. He also spoke at length about the respect he had and the excellent relations he had with both Pierre Trudeau as prime minister, a liberal, and Prime Minister Joe Clark, a conservative. Both Pierre Trudeau and Joe Clark, as former prime ministers, were very involved in the Carter Center, the the NGO that President and Mrs. Carter set up after they left the White House. Even in recent years, Joe Clark has participated in Carter Center election monitoring. So this profound respect. Uh, and President Carter also, he did something that not all presidents uh, have done, which is he didn't know Canada well, but he sure learned his brief before he met our prime ministers. And, and in broad strokes, his view of international and bilateral uh, affairs were very much in line with Canadian views from both parties. It's hard to think of of a leader, of a president of the United States uh, over the last half century, who has been more aligned with Canada than Jimmy Carter. Yeah, I once saw a poll, Ben, um, in doing some research. It was a you know, a poll in, in 1980, uh, yeah, it must have been 1980, where a polling sample of Canadians re- revealed that something like 65 or 70 percent of Canadians at the time said they would have voted to uh, reelect Jimmy Carter. As we know from history, Americans disagreed with us. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Yeah, the, President uh, Reagan was elected. Yes, uh, en masse, as it turned out. Yeah. I mean, you see, you see, you've written about him. Uh, you edited a book about him, the one you referenced earlier, the 2011 yeah. book called Jimmy and Rosalind Carter, a Canadian tribute. You sat to he stayed at your house. Well, what was that yeah. like? I mean, I mean, here he here he is. I mean, I think we we've seen him publicly for so long. We know what a great humanitarian he is. What was your memories of just sitting with him and chatting and talking? Well, one thing I remember is having to give the news to my wife that a U.S. president and first lady and the Secret Service were coming to our house for a sleepover. So Allison got home from work and uh, she came in the door and I said, hey, I've got great news. And she said, what's that? And I said, President and Mrs. Carter are coming to Kingston. And Allison started to go up the stairs and, uh, you know, she said, wow, that'd be great. We'll be able to see them. And then she stopped and she turned around. She looked at me and she said, you better not have asked them to stay here. (laughs) And I said, well, it came up. (laughs) And uh, I often get asked today, uh, what do you do to get ready for the visit, an overnight visit by a U.S. president? Yeah, what I say, and it's totally true, you clean and then you clean some more and then you clean after that. And when you're done the cleaning, you clean again. It was a, a very great honor to host the president. Uh, we sat near our fire for a couple of hours, just, you know, having some wine and talking. And and uh, for me, it was just a remarkable uh, once-in-a-lifetime experience to speak with President Carter, a U.S. president, but speak to President Carter specifically about the Camp David Accords right. uh, between Egypt and Israel or the SALT II negotiations with Leonard Brezhnev of the Soviet Union, the Panama Canal Treaties. And for me, I first became interested 
in Jimmy Carter and started to look up to uh, look up to him uh, when I was probably only 11 or 12. And he was in the White House. And my mother, who never spoke about politics, she broke that rule and she spoke uh, often about Jimmy Carter. And she said the same thing. And she would say, Jimmy Carter is a good and decent man. And her, joined by my father, were very impacted by fears of the Cold War. And both my parents said, with this man from Plains, Georgia, a man of conviction and a man of peace, they would say, in the White House, they felt safe with Jimmy Carter's finger on the, you know, on the button. Yeah, my parents have passed away. So it was uh, very important, and, and I won't lie, very emotional for me to be able to tell Jimmy Carter what my mom and dad had said all those years ago uh, when I was growing up in Scarborough, Ontario. He, he just looked at me and gave me a gentle smile. And then Mrs. Carter spoke up, and I'll never forget. And she said, Art. She said, that's how I felt, too. They also graciously planted ceremonial trees in our garden. So, obviously, in the last few days, when since we've heard that uh, President Carter's on his final journey, I get to look at those trees, and I think about this great man, and I also think about how privileged my wife and I are and will forever be. Well, Arthur Mills, thank you so much for your uh, unique insight on President Jimmy Carter. Thanks, Ben. Oh, I think we've all seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory back in uh, the Gene Wilder version, of course. But the book, I mean, I read the book as a kid. I think I read most of Roald Dahl's books as a child at some point. And his books, although he's been gone for a while, his books are back in the news this week. I don't know if you've seen all the furor over some changes that were made by his publisher, Puffin. They've removed certain references to make sure his books can, quote, continue to be enjoyed by all today. Now, critics, of course, have jumped all over this. You know the kind of political climate we're in right now, um, accusing the British publisher of censorship um, and essentially saying that this was completely unnecessary. I'll give you an idea, though, of what it is they've done, because most of these changes, you know, there's there's really there are changes to passages relating to weight, mental health, gender and race have been altered. Most of them make no material difference to the plot uh, at all. You barely even notice them if you read. I, I don't imagine you notice it at all if you read it. But here's one example that everyone has been kind of jumping on. Uh, Augustus Gloop, who you remember, which is the gluttonous, the gluttonous antagonist from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, um, was published back in 1964, of course. He's no longer enormously fat. He's just enormous. Um, then in 2001, the edition reads, a nine-year-old boy who was so enormously fat, he looked as though he'd been blown up by a powerful pump. Now it reads, a nine-year-old boy who was so enormous, he, so enormous, he looked as though he'd been blown up by a powerful pump. It also adapts great flabby folds of fat bulged out of every part of his body and his face like a monstrous ball of dough to great folds bulged out from every part of his body and his face was like a ball of dough. So you wonder, you wonder what exactly they, I mean, you wonder how it was done, right? I think it was done with all, with the best intentions. And it was also done after careful consideration, according to the publisher, who worked with a UK-based organization called Inclusive Minds which is pushing to modernize children's lit. Here's uh, what they have to say. 
As an organisation, uh, what we'd really like to see is a really diverse and inclusive um, children's book industry where books rep can represent every single child. So therein lies the impetus behind it. But even, you know, authors such as Salman Rushdie, who knows a thing or two about censorship, has called this absurd censorship. So trying to figure out where this is all going is uh, joining us now is Trisha Tucker. She's an associate teaching professor of writing at the University of Southern California. Trisha, thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, anytime we talk about words in books, I think it's probably a good thing. But this one, I mean, it's just landed in a, in a political climate that is so volatile. Uh, but what do you make of these changes? It's so interesting to me that it is Roald Dahl's books that are being censored in this Indeed. way, because yeah. he's never been known as a, a soft and friendly kind of writer. You know, his books have long been criticized for being pretty, pretty frightening, um, even brutish, uh, not having those kind of strong role models that you'll often see in children's literature. So the fact that they're kind of tweaking his language is particularly, I think, kind of fascinating. Yeah, it's hard to make Charlie and the Chocolate Factory anything but kind of a bizarre book, right? It's not, uh, it's not one of those, it's not like where the wild things are, you know? Yeah, he's he's very interested in the darker sides of human nature. And in fact, uh, you know, it's so interesting is children's reactions to his books that I think a lot of young readers recall being somewhat frightened and even repulsed by some of the things in his book. And yet they they talk about how it opened their imaginations, how it taught them to love reading. So, again, just the fact that they, they went with someone who's not warm and fuzzy and tweets language, not only the, the examples you were pointing out about weight um, but also, you know, changing descriptors of a of a, a mean woman from being horse faced, <laughs> just right. taking that kind of thing out, you know, just wanting to kind of make all of the language um, more polite, more or less objectionable uh, when, again, that just seems so uh, out of character for for what you're looking for when you read a Roald Dahl book. Yeah. I mean, it had me thinking back when I was a kid, my dad used to buy me Hardy Boy books. He'd often try to get them at the secondhand store because they were less expensive. So I'd have some new ones and some old ones. And if you mm -hmm. read the two different versions of them, they'd clearly been updated, right? They were updated for, for timeliness, really. I mean, the way that cars were described or what they were driving, things changed. They just updated them to, so that younger readers could make sense of them. Um, sure. I, I guess that this is a little bit different, but I'm just wondering, what do you make of the controversy over it? I mean, uh, Salman <laughs> Rushdie, is, for Salman Rushdie to come out and call it censorship is, is quite is quite a big it's quite a big move. Yeah, you're right. If anyone knows uh, censorship or censorship attempts, it would be him. Um, it's such a fascinating case because this is, uh, in the first place, an example of a kind of self censorship. You know, I think in the news lately in the last year or two. Uh, we've gotten a lot of stories of parents, politicians, uh, school boards wanting to remove books from libraries and, um, you know, schoolrooms. And what this is, is clearly a publisher who seems like they're trying to get ahead of that, um, trying to remove anything that could be deemed objectionable before these books can be targeted by censorship-seeking um, groups. So that's just really interesting in and of itself. It, I think it really shows us that in the moment we're at with all of these debates on both the left and the right about what is appropriate reading material for children, I think it's likely that self-censorship will become more and more common by publishers, by authors, by librarians. There's a strong uh, trend in writing for and by librarians about them 
being careful uh, in many cases to start censoring their own choices for child readers, particularly because they've been targets of outrage in their communities for allowing children to read books that in many cases have been perfectly considered perfectly acceptable for children for a long time. And now suddenly they're caught in the in the crossfire. So it's really interesting because it's self-censorship. And I think it's also noteworthy because this is an example um, of censorship coming from more a, a progressive stance. And again, so many of the examples we've been hearing about lately uh, that have been making all the headlines have been primarily from a right wing or a conservative standpoint, trying to limit children's access to books about BIPOC characters or you know, police brutality or LGBTQ kind of characters. And here we're getting um, the opposite of that progressive, presumably progressive forces kind of concerned about. Um, depictions of minoritized characters uh, and, and language that be, could be considered anti-feminist or offensive in other ways. Yeah, it, it reminds me of how filmmakers would self-censor to get into the Chinese market, right? I mean, they just did it because it made sense. In this case, I suppose, if you're Roald Dahl's publisher, you're thinking it'd be best if we just made sure. I mean, they're already kind of um, out there anyway. Why don't we just make sure there's no language in here that can get us into trouble and that we'll, we'll get ahead of the curve? I found it. You wrote an interesting, fascinating article a way back, a ways back about part of this is 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 a vast and deep misunderstanding of how children read, which I thought was a really interesting argument. Um, that all yeah. this hand hand wringing over this over these issues completely and not completely that's exaggerating, but has a has a real profound um, sense of how children read, and it's not really the way they do. Right. No, that's exactly right. And, you know, I feel honestly a lot of um, ambivalence about these debates because I can completely understand, given our prevalent cultural narratives that circulate in the media, but also just circulate in our in our homes and in our schools. You know, the narrative that's out there is that children are by nature and kind of ahistorically uh, these blank slates. And that because they are these blank slates, that when they read, for example, they are passive. They are merely like the text imprints itself. Its values imprint themselves onto the child reader. And you're right. That's not actually uh, what the research shows. Research into how people read and, and then specifically how children read is incredibly diverse. And it's also very contradictory. Um, but I can't summarize it, summarize it all for you here. But in summary, what I can say is that in this wide body of scholarship, what we've learned is that you cannot predict how any individual reader, and this is true for children, maybe especially, will respond to a text. It's not the case that, uh, you know, a value that an author is trying to promote in a book or something that might seem clear to me as an adult reader will be understood by children in the same way it's understood by me. Children are active readers. They're making meaning along with the text. It's a really collaborative process. So I understand why parents who don't, don't know that and see children as merely being these blank slates are worried about what values uh, and messages kids will imbibe from books. And that's why I think the more we can kind of, um, you know, reframe the debate with the knowledge of some of the research, but also the knowledge that this blank slate idea is not a historical. It comes from the Enlightenment and the, or the um, Romantic period. Um, and so if we know these things and we, we are a little bit more um, aware of how children read, um, and also the many things we don't know about how children read, 
I think we can lower the panic level a little bit that, you know, a child encountering an unflattering depiction of a another child or a woman, or I, I saw one of the things that got uh, removed from uh, Willy Wonka was uh, the, the the kid with the, the many guns, the ones who's obsessed yes. with the Westerns. You know, yes. just the idea that, that seeing uh, Mike TV with his plastic guns would somehow damage a child, you know, um, I think we just lower the panic level a little bit. Yeah, it would seem like, I mean, I remember one thing as a child is that reading was so much more intense when you were young because you weren't as, dis- mm. I found you weren't as distracted as you, and you didn't have as much to base it on. So every book you read sort of opened up this whole new, whole new world to you, but often not in the way I would imagine this debate would consider. I mean, I don't think you, I would read the word horse face as a six-year-old and immediately start using the term, <laughs> right? You might ask what it meant, right. which is the whole point, which is the whole point. I, I'm wondering if this is going to cool down at all. It feels like it's actually heating up because it's become such a, you know, it's become a wedge issue. And once you get into wedge issues, here we go. But it feels incredibly unfortunate that we're picking on kid, on children's lit because so much of it is so, a lot of it's not particularly great, but so much of it is is excellent. Well, and you know, it's so interesting because in some ways it's such an old fashioned debate. Here we are talking about the power of books to change and shape children's minds and behavior. And in some ways that feels so retro, doesn't it? We're not it talking does. about, yeah. you know, video games or, or what our phones, TikTok. right? Yeah, TikTok. Um, yeah, so exactly. on the one hand, <laughs> as someone who loves books and teaches uh, literature, you know, I can't help but be somewhat, somewhat love the idea that people are still invested in books being this powerful, uh, even though I think they often get the wrong end of the stick. Um, you know, but it's always been, you know, books have always been kind of looked at suspiciously because we envision books as inhabiting our hearts and minds when we read, kind of invading us in a way, especially children, again, because they're viewed as so innocent and, and uh unprotected. But yeah, so so I think this like suspicion of books and almost fear of the reading process is not new. As you say, the the temperature sure does feel like it's at a fever pitch. Um, but what I really see playing out, and, and again, if, if, if people can see a little bit more common ground, that would be helpful. But what I really see playing out is a clash between the kind of presumed like ethical responsibility of parents and school boards on the one hand to kind of protect children from things they think aren't healthy or age appropriate. And on the other hand, the the parents, the teachers, the librarians who want to protect children's ability to use literature as a forum for working through maybe difficult material. You know, it's certainly not true that children will never hear the word fat out in the world, out on the playground, in a movie, hear a, 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 you know, a term probably much worse than horse face. So what's yeah. dangerous about encountering it in a book and maybe talking with children about the reading that they're doing? Yeah, I, I think I think we're I'm in, I'm in, in agreement with you on this one. I'm I'm neither incensed or impressed by it. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> why but why did you bother? I get why you bothered, but maybe you shouldn't have bothered. But anyway, yeah, it, you know, it feels like a bit of overkill to be sure. It does, and there is certainly a used copy of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory out there somewhere if you want to. As my dad used to do, if you want to pay a little bit less for that book and expose your children to the language that used to be in it, then it's out there somewhere. Uh, Trisha Tucker, thank I you think, so much. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. For sure. Ahead. Finish your thought. I was just going to say, I think I think Neil Gaiman pointed that out recently, that, you know, there's millions of Roald Dahl's old books out there. What are you going to do? Kind of buy them up and ink out all the words you don't like. So you're, you're 100% <laughs> right. Those books are still available out there and still going to be read and cherished. Absolutely. Absolutely. Trisha, thank you so much. Thank you.
if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that prior to coming here, I spent a long time as a correspondent, quite a few years as a foreign correspondent. And one of the countries I spent a fair amount of time in was Ukraine back in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the beginnings of this invasion uh, in the eastern part of the country, uh, the Donbass, as it's known, a term you may have heard over the past year. So it's with um, obvious interest that we mark, that I mark, one year since Russia's further invasion of Ukraine. It will be one year ago on Friday. In fact, we were on the air when Russia began to bombard uh, Kiev on the 24th of, uh, of February 2022. So this week we've been marking that one year. We've been going back to some of the people we've spoken to over the past year. They were talking about it as well at the UN today. They convened a vote on an urgent resolution to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, to call on Moscow to end the war. Here's UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. The one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine stands as a grim milestone for the people of Ukraine and for the international community. Now, you know U.S. President Biden has been there. He was in Kyiv on Sunday. He's continued that four-day trip. He's been in Poland. Uh, today, he said that Russian President Vladimir Putin had made a big mistake by suspending Moscow's participation in the last remaining U.S.-Russia nuclear arms control treaty. Uh, the U.S. had often accused Russia of violating it anyway, but it certainly was symbolic. And Biden made remarks today in Poland when he met with NATO's eastern flank allies. He says NATO allies realize the importance of continuing to defend Ukraine. Today, as we approach the uh, one-year anniversary of Russia's further invasion, it's even more important that we continue to stand together. Joe Biden there today. He's wrapped up that four-day visit to Poland and Ukraine. So in many ways, although anniversaries are just days, it has been a hugely symbolic week already. Uh, Vladimir Putin has been out talking a lot this week, uh, certainly uh, drawing up his own narrative of why this is being done. Uh, we've been reflecting on NATO. The UN is holding meetings. But what about in Kyiv? What does it look like from there? Because it has been a very difficult year, despite the successes in many would say the surprising success of Ukraine in repelling uh, this further invasion by Russia. Many thought, uh, the Russians thought, Vladimir Putin thought they'd be having a victory parade in Kyiv uh, just a few days after this all began. And here we are, nearly a year later, and they're a long, long way from that. As President Biden said, Ukraine is free. Kyiv, most of Ukraine is free. Kyiv is certainly still free today. But what is it like for those who've lived through all of this? Well, if you know better than that, then my next guest, Kira Rudik, is a member of the Ukrainian parliament. Uh, we've spoken to her quite a few times over the past year. Uh, she was quite famously photographed holding a Kalashnikov back in the early days following the invasion, the further invasion. So we wanted to get her thoughts on what this anniversary means, what it has been like the past year to be both a lawmaker and a resident of Kyiv. And Kira Rudik joins me now from the Ukrainian capital. Kira, thank you. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. It's hard to imagine that it's been a year since the further invasion began. But when you look back, it has been an incredible year. You're still in Kyiv. Kyiv is still free. There's been so much accomplished. Yeah, you know, we are amazed and uh, also surprised that we are here because as we learned over this past year, tomorrow is not given. Tomorrow is something that we have to fight for. And week by week, month by month, we got here thanks to our, our forces and to the incredible support from the world. I think nobody could have predicted 
that we will be here in free Kiev. When you look back at, at all that's happened, what has surprised you the most in a good way? You know, I think the story of Ukraine and our fight, same as story of our president, is that we are more capable of doing things that the world expects from us and that we ourselves expect from us. And I think this what has been so surprising, that you can think about what you would do at the time of crisis, at the time of a threat, but actually nobody knows and you don't know how you would act, what you would do, how many people you would be able to save. Would you run or would you stay? Would you fight? And how well would you fight? You can only try it and see. And I think because we had to try, we have seen that we can do so much more than we expected. And perhaps on the other side, things that have disappointed you. I know we've talked about air defenses since we first spoke, I think, back in March of last year. Uh, What has disappointed you the most about the last year? I think the fact that it took us a year for the whole world to believe us when we are saying uh, Putin is evil, Russia would not keep their word. They have this imperialistic view of things and they are fighting to fight not even to win or not to obtain something. And every single time there was this understanding of one of the steps, we were doing like the hashtag, we told you so. But it's not funny at all because we pay for this time and for this ability of the world to realize that we were right for the last nine years all this way. We are paying for it with with the lives of our people, with living under the constant threat. Like yesterday, there was Putin's speech where Mm -hmm. he was uh, not even giving an explanation of why they are fighting. He was just saying, we fight because we can, we fight because we are powerful. And then he uh, also declared that they are pulling off the nuclear uh, preservance deal. And everybody was like, oh, they can pull uh, off a deal. And we Mm -hmm. were saying, yes, this is exactly what we were telling you. And this is what we are afraid the most with any peaceful agreement or any diplomatic negotiation with them. And this is what has been the most upsetting. Is that a discussion that's happening in Kyiv right now? What does this, what do the, does the end of this fighting look like? What could it look like? Honestly, no. We are more talking about like, how do we get through 23rd, 24th of February? Because we know that uh, Putin is fixated on the dates. So we are expecting that they would uh, try to do something cruel and another terrorist attack either tomorrow because it's a um, uh, day of uh, Russian army or on 24th because it will be year anniversary. Uh, this is like what we are concentrated on. And uh, second is, of course, the spring uh, offensive and counteroffensive of how do we get through that? Because we know it will be critical for us. Nobody is talking about peaceful deals or like, how it would all end because we have made our decisions a year ago and even before that. We know that we cannot trust Russians. We know that they would not stop unless we will be stopping them. And this is what we have been doing. And we know that before there is a leader or an organization that can assure us that uh, Russia will keep their part of the bargain, there is no negotiation. And as of right now, same as a year ago when we spoke with you, uh, there is none, nobody is stepping up and saying, yeah, well, we'll make sure that Russia keeps their part of the deal because they know that 
that, that Russia would not. They know that Putin would not. And this is why we will continue fighting. This is why we know that our way is to push them away from our country and win the war. What was it like to have President Biden in Kiev over the weekend and, and just what that says, I guess, about, about allied support for Ukraine, but good and bad, because clearly when you see a political visit of that stature, it's symbolic. But behind the scenes, we don't really know if, if Ukraine is still satisfied with the support that it's getting. So what was it like to have President Biden there? And, and is there anything under the surface that we should know? Well, uh, of course, it was an amazing and super symbolic visit. Uh, First of all, because it happened on exact nine years anniversary of Putin invading Crimea and actually starting the war. Mm -hmm. And we also commemorate uh, commemorate, the heroes of uh, Maidan who has fallen during the day. Also, it was symbolic because Putin planned to have a parade uh, on the streets of Kiev. And now a year after U.S. embassy was evacuating its uh, staff, President Biden is here and we are still here. And it's all like so amazing. Probably the worst thing that President Biden said was one word. You uh, will have a, a very tough times ahead, days, months, years. And we know that we don't have years. We know that it's Putin's plan to have a word of attrition and to exhaust the political will to exhaust resources, to exhaust us and push forward. And he has resources to do that. And so we cannot have like the, 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 the years story. We need to have it sooner. You know, if we're talking about the last year, it was the year when we said, please help us. This year we are saying, please help us ASAP. Kira Rudek is a member of the Ukrainian parliament. She's with us this half hour. We're talking about the one-year anniversary upcoming uh, of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia and all that has happened since. You wrote an interesting opinion piece today, Kira, about state support of terrorism and why Russia should be declared, much like Canada's already declared countries such as Iran and Syria to fall into that boat, why Russia should fall into that boat as well. I know others have, at least a handful of countries already have done it. Why do you think it's a good idea? And, and are you disappointed that Canada hasn't done it yet? Uh, Well, first of all, about disappointment, we don't have any, honestly. We have seen that every international step is just a matter of the work that you put in and a matter of explanation. Let's just take a look at what Russia has committed to Ukraine over the last year, uh, not even including like what happened in the front. They are constantly launching missile attacks against the peaceful population, against our schools, hospitals, against our apartment buildings and killing people who are not fighting them. And in all other areas, in all other places, doing something like this is considered a terrorist attack. But for some reason, right now, because of the full-scale invasion, uh, it seems that many countries decide not to uh, acknowledge it like that. But if you look at, if, if you remove all the other words and just saying somebody launched a missile and killed 46 people in their beds, including children, you would say it's a terrorist attack. Whoever did it is a terrorist and he needs to be treated as one. So when you are going into the international politics, acknowledging a country as state sponsor of terrorism 
is uh, allowing for the secondhand sanctions. It allows to make sure that the country becomes a real pariah, the one that, that one cannot trade with openly, the one that has limitations on getting all kinds of support, the one who becomes really isolated. And this is what we are calling for. Because once all the allies declare Russia state sponsor of terrorism, then as the sanctions will actually start working. It's like another upsetting thing that we that we see is that so many people hope that sanctions would work right away. And it's been only one and a half months since the real ones started working. So before before December, uh, European countries were paying a billion dollars a day for Russian energy resources, a billion. So that would allow Putin still to, to launch like maybe another war and still be okay. And so the sanctions started working only in December. And we are not even right now at the point to evaluate if they, they are like really, really working or they would work slower than we expected. So this is why what we learned, this response needs to be united and hopefully unanimous. So there will be like no other countries and no other areas where Russia could have their markets uh, or could trade with. We know that it's very hard to do, but we also know that this is our aspiration to make sure that uh, things that we knew for nine years and even before, the world would not only acknowledge mentally and emotionally, also in writing and in political statement. And this is what we are calling for. I want to ask you about China, because I know you spent some time in Taiwan. Uh, I know that you were warned recently by China not to buy anything from Taiwan. Would China, uh, China sort of put itself forward as a interlocutor here to some extent, someone who may be able to negotiate something between Russia and Ukraine. Would you, what's your opinion of that? And this is their, they've self-declared this. I don't, haven't heard anyone in Kiev calling for it, but um, certainly they have a relationship with Moscow. What would you make of that? Well, first of all, we have our peace plan and our requirements and demands, and we are fighting. So these demands would be heard and to implement our peaceful plan. We have not seen like what's in Chinese peace plan and why are they stepping up trying to establish it? It just sounds uh, very suspicious to me. You know, when the full the war starts in your country, it all becomes so black and white. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people who support you and so allow you to live longer and allow your country to to exist and your people not to be killed. And so they are your friends. And there are ones who are uh, supporting your enemy, uh, giving him or him more abilities to kill you, giving him more resources to kill you, destroy you and everything that you love. And it's so it's simple as that. So for people who are supporting our enemy, I don't think that there is a, a true value in the plan that they are offering. However, we have not been able to examine it. Well, Kira Rudik, as always, thank you so much for your time. Stay safe. And uh, yeah, this will be, we'll be speaking to you again, no doubt, as the as the second year progresses. And hopefully it brings better news than the first year. Thank you so much. And glory to Ukraine. As has been mentioned, I'm sure you've heard this throughout today. I'm wearing a pink shirt today. Today is indeed Pink Shirt Day, the largest bullying prevention movement in the world right now. It all began, believe it or not, back in Halifax. It's Canadian. 
uh, back in 2007 when a grade nine student was being bullied for wearing a pink shirt to school. That's when two of his classmates and their friends organized a protest. They wore pink in solidarity with the student and they handed out pink shirts to all the boys in their school. One of those students who still champions this um, is Travis Price. And here's what he had to say. To see that student being bullied, just knowing what he was going through, knowing that there's others out there like him that uh, were suffering the same thing and, and all that was ever needed was somebody to stand up, somebody to make a difference, somebody to say enough is enough. And that's what we were able to do that day at our school. And then very luckily, you know, it spread across our province, our country, and now the world where people want to support this movement, people want to join in because this is a way that we can symbolize that bullying needs to stop uh, both in schools, workplaces, wherever it may be, uh, that this is part of life that doesn't need to be there. Travis Price, who helped organize that protest all the way back in 2007 that has led to what we now know as Pink Shirt Day. It has spread to 50 countries, becoming a truly international day. There are so many ways to look at this problem, but I thought it'd be interesting to reflect on workplace bullying, especially now as we've all sort of adapted to remote work. And then with many of us now working in some sort of hybrid arrangement, it has no doubt changed the very nature of it to some extent, or has it? Now, historically, the numbers paint a pretty grim picture. In a study conducted by the Workplace Bullying Institute, 30% of workers in this country reported having been bullied. 50% of the targets were women. The majority of bullies, 72%, are people in positions of authority. And stats show those bullies don't always pick on the new hire, but long-term, well-established employees. So as we mark Pink Shirt today, t- Day today, I thought we would take a look into the workplace. And to help us do that is Linda Crockett. She's founder of the Canadian Institute of Workplace Bullying Resources in Edmonton. Linda, thank you. Thank you for having me. Picture Day uh, is a day to talk about bullying uh, in, in a certain context, but it also feels like an important time to talk about bullying broadly, specifically bullying in the workplace. Um, how does it manifest itself and how is it different from what we see in the schoolyard, for instance? Well, thank you for bringing the attention to workplace bullying. I mean, Pink Shirt Day is an incredibly important day, and I'm wearing hot pink, as you could see when we saw each other. (laughs) Because of our youth, our children, our grandchildren, they're being bullied at school, they're being bullied in the schoolyard, on their way home from school, in the communities, and that's bad enough. That's terrifying, and it's causing harm. But we don't want them growing up and being bullied in the workplace as well. We all think that we're mature, that we're protected by, uh, you know, professionalism and policies and legislation. But I'm afraid to say that we're not. Workplace bullying is an epidemic. It has been for a very long time. And even the pandemic made things a lot worse for people because all the risk factors were heightened greatly thanks to the pandemic. So workplace bullying is different from childhood bullying. It's not that stereotype you know, meek or mild child, they're the big brute goes after that child. It's actually quite the opposite. And it's psychological harassment that can also evolve to psychological violence. So it's often tactics that aren't seen because they're happening behind closed doors, quite insidious, actually. And it might not hurt the first time or the first 20 times, but it might by the 300th time that you've been insulted, eventually it's going to wear on you and people are becoming quite ill physically and psychologically, suffering mental health issues, suffering physical illness. And we actually see people, you know, becoming suicidal, completing suicides, homicides, heart attack, stroke. It's that serious. And it's costing multiple millions, even to billions every year because we're not dealing with it right. 
And you mentioned that you'd come to this from uh, from a place of understanding, right? Yeah, it's because I went through it myself in 2008. I went through it. And at that point in time, I was a social worker for 22 years. So I really knew what abuse was. I knew all kinds of abuse. I supervised and trained investigators and assessors. And yet when I went through it, I had absolutely no idea what was happening to me. I just knew that something was wrong and that I was becoming more and more afraid. I was shrinking as a human being. I was losing my confidence. I was starting to isolate and I was starting to feel sick. You know, my stomach was full of, you know, acid reflux and ulcers. And eventually when I finally found out what it was, by that time I was diagnosed with PTSD. So when I started looking around for help, there was nothing and nobody was talking about it. I decided that I would get my recovery done. I would get a master's degree in this area. I would develop an expertise and start this company because I knew if I almost didn't make it, how were other people without my education you know, going to make it? What about people who don't speak English as a first language? I mean, really, this is a very tough form of abuse because it's just like domestic violence and sexual abuse. It's very shaming. And it, it, it makes people go into isolation and it causes serious harm. So I, for the last 12 years, I've been running this company, building awareness and started the Workplace Bullying Awareness Week, which is every October. And that's now gone international. We now have 16 countries that have joined us. I'm very proud of Canada for being a leader on that, but we've done it. We've got, it's a worldwide issue and we need a worldwide voice on it. And I think that is the solution. I've seen all kinds of t- statistics about how many employees endure uh, workplace bullying. Uh, one stat out of Australia is 60% of employees at a cost of $36 billion each year. Uh, Canadian stat that I saw back from 2006, I don't know if there's a more recent one, was 40%. But clearly a lot of people um, have gone through this. I guess the difficulty is where, how do you recognize the line between criticism and bullying? For one, people need to take training, not just the one hour webinar, check a box. That's just not, that's irresponsible. If any employer thinks that meets the mark, it's nowhere close. You need trauma-informed in-depth training to understand what is and what is not workplace bullying, because there's so many fine lines. And there there is definitions out there, but they're, they're confusing and they're not very clear. And every researcher says it differently. So people need to understand what is and what is not and how to identify it. You want to prevent it from causing harm. So you want to catch it in the early stages where, you know, some criticism makes you feel uncomfortable or undermines you or humiliates you or embarrasses you. Criticism can be very constructive and supportive. It's all in a delivery. But if somebody is consistently offending you and embarrassing you and rolling their eyes at you or ignoring you or ostracizing you over three months or more, and it's completely directed at you all the time, then I think you probably got a good case of workplace bullying there or psychological harassment, which will evolve and become worse. So there's many different types of bullies. They're not all one category. And there's many different types of people that are affected. But there are some profiles that we see of the different people that are being targeted. Usually they're very hardworking people. They're very dedicated. They're very ethical and they stand up for what's wrong. Usually the people that go above and beyond. Those are usually the targets. So I would say they're the opposite of the childhood bully. 
They're the strong people in the workplace that are being targeted. Linda Crockett is with us this half hour. She is founder of the Canadian Institute of Workplace Bullying Resources. On this pink shirt day to raise awareness about bullying, we're talking about bullying in the workplace. You mentioned it right off the top, but you talked a bit about what remote work has done. And now I suspect that some people not being in the workplace may have made the issue better, but you've also seemed to, you were hinting at the fact that it's also made it worse. How so? Oh, you know, I honestly thought I was going to get a good rest when we went through the pandemic because everybody's going to be working from home. They're going to be safe. And I was way, 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 way too wrong, wrong about that one. My work actually quadrupled and it has not stopped in the entire time. My work has been incredibly busy. I have never seen anything like it. Why? Because the risk factors that always increase, always existed multiplied isolation, segregation, separation, Bullies that used to bully at work would now phone people at home. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? What's this in your calendar for? Why did you decide to do this? Micromanaging them over the phone, micromanaging them over the computer. So now they're in their own home. They're feeling safe, used to feel safe in their home. Now they're being triggered just walking by their own computer or their phone, scared to answer it. And there's other tactics, absolutely absurd of tactics like For example, the people that could work from home, there was no reason that they couldn't, were being forced to come in anyway, you know, and maybe they had an autoimmune disease and it was better for them to be at home, but yet they were being forced in anyway, or they'd lose their jobs. Or, you know, a case where a child had an autoimmune disease, the parent could work at home, no problem, but the bully was forcing them to come in anyway, which put their child at risk, right? Or at work when you're supposed to be six feet apart, wearing a mask, some people weren't. And other people were scared and upset and distressed. And they just, you know, lack of staff, that's a high risk factor, lack of supervision, unresolved staffing issues, lack of follow through on policies, favoritism, nepotism, all of that just really multiplied during the pandemic. And they just found, and even people that didn't bully in the past were now under so much pressure because of the cutbacks and the and the fears that they started to bully too, right? So you had your toxic clicks before. Well, now you've got even more toxic clicks. And people were building, being bullied in meetings on Zoom, which is incredibly embarrassing, humiliating as well, just like in person. But here it is out on a, on a network as well. So it didn't stop the abuse. It actually heightened it. How do we fix it? I mean, the awareness, the fact that your organization like yours exists, um, the fact that we have Pink Shirt Day, We've certainly started the conversation. Um, Have you seen an improvement, uh, you know, pandemic aside, have you seen any kind of improvement just with how aware workplaces are about these problems and how to go about fixing them? You know, it's been 12 years. So for me, of course, I've seen an improvement. I never thought I would see legislation in, in my province, for example, that would have the word bullying in it. Not in my lifetime, but we do. We have we actually have a legis- the word bullying and harassment in every province now in Canada. So that's fantastic. There is improvement there. Do we need more definition? Yes. Does it need to be, you know, more strengthened, more teeth to it? Yes. But progress is being made. I think between the combination of the Me Too movement, legislation happening, some large organizations being exposed over social media. City of Edmonton in 2017 and 2018 was highly exposed. And then the pandemic, all of this together just sent a a big wave of energy out there and information. So I think for a while it'll be the hot topic and then we'll find a new normal because before nothing was bullying, now everything is bullying. We have to go through this phase of storming, forming, norming and uh, 
in my opinion, in-depth trauma-informed training is critical. I, I, I guess at this point in time, where you mentioned it already, we're still trying to figure out exactly what this looks like and what the what the repercussions should be. Well, that's true. I mean, there should be consequences for malicious complaints. There should be consequences for retaliation. Employers should be setting up safe processes for people to file complaints. And that means, what if HR is the problem? What if the leader is the problem? We've got unions that haven't even taken this training I, I think a lot of workplaces think it's something they can handle. I mean, think something they can handle internally. So picture day 2023, what would you like to see done in the next while if it when it comes to improving how organizations handle complaints, at least? And you mentioned it already to some extent. Well, I think awareness is incredibly important. I think that talking about it, teaching about it, having access to resources, appropriate resources, qualified resources. I think, you know, building awareness. So having organizations join us in October, uh, become, you know, we do a lot of free stuff. It's all on social media and just inviting us in to talk. Are you hopeful? I mean, you've talked about the 10 years since. Um, Do you feel like we're heading at least in the right direction? You know what? I am. Look where we came from domestic violence. We used to shame and silence that the victim of domestic violence. We used to shame and silence the the victim of sexual assault. We used to they were in the closet. Look how far we came with that. We have to do the same thing with workplace bullying. I think it is out of the closet now. So I think that's progress. And now I think it's it's we've got a lot more things to learn, a lot more things to correct yet. But yeah, I am hopeful. I know a lot of people would disagree with me because they've been hurt and injured severely, but I am hopeful. I've been watching this for a long time. Well, Linda Crockett, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. One person who spent an awful lot of time in Ukraine the past year is Global National Correspondent Jeff Semple. He's been back and forth across that country from the furthest east, right, you know, right up to Kharkiv, down through parts of the Donbass. He was just in Kherson. In the south, a city that was uh, occupied by the Russians for eight months until it was liberated back in November, he's seen a lot of what's been going on, not just in Kiev and in Lviv and those places, but also right across the front lines. Um, and we wanted to get a better idea of what it is that he's been looking to report on. You know, it's it's simple to go to a to a place that's in the middle of a, such a brutal conflict and simply cover the disasters, cover the pain, um, do the story everyone else is doing. But behind it, there are other stories to tell. There are stories you're not hearing enough of, stories that often paint just as vivid a picture of what is happening in a country such as Ukraine right now as the daily count of who's hit what by whom and what politicians have said about what and the fights over armaments and the fights over funding and so forth. And so it was that in mind, with that in mind, that Jeff returned to Ukraine recently for two weeks or more to cover stories ahead of this one-year anniversary. Uh, so we thought this was an ideal time to catch up with him. You can see his reports on Global National. You can see his reports on The New Reality, which airs on Saturday evenings on Global. And Jeff Semple has been reporting from there. Here's a quick snippet of some of the work he's been doing of late. 
Ukrainian officials and museum staff say this wasn't the work of a handful of Russian soldiers who were simply looking to loot some high-priced paintings, but rather, they say, it's part of a broader campaign by the Russians to destroy Ukrainian heritage and culture. Ukraine says Russian forces have looted tens of thousands of pieces from dozens of museums and cultural institutions. The sheer scale of the art heist, drawing comparisons to the Nazis in the Second World War. An idea of one of the reports he filed from Kherson there, where the museum was simply pillaged by Russian by the Russians as they as they as they left as they withdrew they went in and took just about everything that they could and that's been happening all over the country wherever they've been they've been carting off artifacts that are rightfully Ukrainian. Um, with that and much more on his reporting his views of the past year, Jeff Semple, uh, global national correspondent, joins me now. Jeff, thank you. Welcome back. Hey Ben, yeah, great to be back with you. So tell me a bit about this trip to Ukraine, because as I know from those trips, it's hard to decide what stories you want to tell, because there's so much you can talk about one year later. What were you hoping to tell when you went? Yeah, I mean, the challenge with this one, obviously, one year later, is that we're trying to find, you know, stories that offer kind of an original, fresh perspective uh, that people haven't heard to try and keep you know, people engaged in in this story. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, particularly the Ukrainians wary of compassion fatigue and, you know, the attention span of people on the other side of the world. And so, you know, we're trying to do our jobs by finding stories that will, get, you know, engage people and get their attention uh, that they haven't heard. So we, you know, we're pretty deliberate in trying to, you know, maybe not just cover the news of the day and sort of follow the puck to borrow a Canadian hockey term, but rather look for stories that hadn't been covered. So we spent a lot of time in the in the city of Kherson, which is in mm-hmm. the south of Ukraine. And as listeners might remember, Kherson was liberated by the Ukrainians in November. It had been under Russian occupation for more than eight months until it was liberated in November. And there were these, you know, incredible parties in the streets and it was amazing. And then after yeah. that, you know, a lot of the reporters left and and it turns out that, you know, the Russians basically retreated and a week later they they turned their big guns around. They're just across the river a few kilometers away and they have just been bombarding this city ever since relentlessly. So we spent a lot of time there and, uh, you know, I'm glad we were there because we saw children's hospitals and maternity hospitals being hit. It was a really heart-wrenching scene and it was just, I mean, it sounds like a never-ending thunderstorm. There's just so much artillery and, you know, not a lot of people there to witness what was going on. So we spent a lot of time there and um, some really heart-wrenching stories from there. Yeah, it feels like in some ways Kherson encompasses everything about the war right now. You know, uh, the, the the attacks on civilians, the 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 story that you just had out the other night was about looting. And I thought that one was one that we haven't heard enough about because it, it says so much about the systematic attempts to destroy as much of Ukraine as they can in every which way. How yeah. did you follow? How did you come upon that one? Yeah, I mean that was a that was a good one in the sense that as you say it hadn't been widely covered and you know some of the reaction to the story online was people were sort of almost scoffing saying you know who cares about the museums that have been looted given that children's hospitals are being bombed but you know as you alluded to there our interest in the story was because you know this fits with the rhetoric and the narrative that we've heard from Vladimir Putin right from the beginning as he you know attempts to justify this invasion claiming that you know his sort of warped version of history that ukraine statehood is is false that ukraine belongs to russia and so what we have seen is a pretty orchestrated campaign to essentially wipe out ukrainian cultural identity and that has involved the looting of dozens of uh, museums cultural institutions 
her son was hit particularly hard because as i said the ukrainians were in control there for eight months and in the weeks before they retreated uh they visited um the her son regional art museum and right, made russians, off right? with that's right the russians did uh, they made off with more than ten thousand pieces of artwork apparently showed up at the front door with representatives of the russian ministry of culture at least that's how they identified themselves and then they spent three days prying these pieces of artwork out of their frame and loading them into these white trucks and driving them away and weeks later they apparently turned up in russian occupied crimea we even saw you know there was an 18th century cathedral in her son where the russians came in and took away the bones the remains of yegory potemkin who is the you know russian prince uh mm-hmm. who the founder of the city of person he had been buried in a crypt beneath this cathedral for more than 200 years until last october when these russian soldiers come up uh, show up and take his bones away so you know from yeah. historic remains to artwork they are looting and um and in trying to destroy these real significant pieces of um, ukrainian heritage and culture yeah, it's not soldiers walking away, walking away with washing machines and TVs like we saw earlier in the war. This is something that's clearly it. far more systematic. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that, and that was the thing is at first I think they thought that a handful of Russian soldiers were just looking to cash in on some high-priced paintings. But clearly, uh, as we've seen just by how widespread this is and how organized this seems to be, I think it, it goes beyond that. You did a story, too, on collaborators, which was interesting. It was a part of the war we haven't seen, but war has many sides to it, as we well know. That's a thorny topic, I have no doubt, in a place like Kherson, where it was under occupation for eight months. So what happens to those who worked with the occupiers, right? That's right. And uh, I mean, there is a pretty serious manhunt underway right now. And I mean, you know, a lot of street corners in her son. Now you see these billboards that have been put up by Ukrainian authorities, basically giving people a phone number or an email address. If you know someone who helped the Russians while they were in charge of her son, you know, call this number and and basically, you know, snitch on your neighbors. Uh, And a lot of people have been. Uh, There are hundreds of cases now. And yeah, I thought it was just sort of remarkable. People from all walks of life. I mean, there are people who are, you know, have been charged with being like tax collectors for the Russians, going around collecting money for the Russian military. Uh, School teachers who were, you know, promoted to being, you know, the director of education and her son and in charge of implementing this new pro-Russian curriculum that taught that her son belongs to Russia. You know, heard stories of police officers and prison guards torturing Ukrainian activists and even journalists who agreed to, you know, work with, I mean, within, it was remarkable, within a couple of months, Russia had launched a a pro-Russian TV station in her son. And, you know, journalists were there preaching this pro-Russian propaganda. Uh, so people from all walks of life are now being hunted and in some cases arrested by the Ukrainian authorities. And, you know, these are her son, like so many other areas of Ukraine, as you know, Ben is rough and speaking. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people felt close ties to Russia, but the refrain that we heard over and over again is that all of that really, for the most part, evaporated when Russia invaded and that people who used to speak Russian, people who held close affinity to Russia, you know, the, the no longer, you know, they're learning to use Kalishnikovs to kill Russian soldiers now. I mean, they have they feel completely betrayed by their Russian brothers and sisters. Uh, but clearly, in some cases, people remained loyal to Russia and or decided to take advantage of the opportunity and believe that Russia was there to stay and we're trying to make the best of it. 
Global National Correspondent Jeff Semple is with us this half hour. He's back from Ukraine after several weeks there. Uh, there's been a whole series of reports on Global National. You can watch them as well on The New Reality. Uh, Jeff, you've been there on a few occasions now over the last year. What have you noticed when you arrived there in each on the, each of these trips? What has changed and what has stayed the same? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, when, when we were there in the early days uh, following that invasion last year, everybody was bracing. I mean, no matter where you were in the country, it felt like this full-scale invasion was coming. And, you know, we saw a lot of just raw grief, like people, you know, at funerals in those early days, just screaming and crying. And, you know, it was just raw and palpable. And a year later, there's almost uh, like a numbness. Like, I think people obviously aren't numb to it, but they're just emotionally exhausted. And the level of trauma has just sort of escalated, I think, now to a point where, you know, we attended funerals. I went to a church in Lviv that is a military church, a garrison church that has been holding funerals almost every day for a year now. Uh, And where we saw, you know, that sort of screams and loud sobbing last year. Now people just sort of are almost quiet um because you know as you talk you talk to them and they say they've been to just so many funerals now and it's just yeah it's horrific i mean there's a cemetery military cemetery in lviv where they were you know when we were there a year ago there was maybe a a dozen freshly dug graves and now there are so many dozens there that they've had to basically start burying people outside the cemetery in a park next to the cemetery so yeah and i think it's still even in a place like Kiev, which is, you know, feels far, it is and feels far away from the front lines. You know, life is in, in some ways returned to normal. I mean, you can go out for dinner, grab a coffee, restaurants are full, you know, people going about their daily life. But every night, you know, you go to bed, you, you wait for the air raid sirens. Sometimes they come, sometimes they don't. When we were there, you know, they came several times in one night and you hear the air raid sirens, you get away from the windows, you know, maybe you go to the bathtub or go to the basement. And you wait for it to be over and hope that it's, you know, that your number is not up, basically. I mean, it is a sort of a sick gamble in that way. And so, I mean, I think just living under that pressure, even for people far from the front lines. I mean, obviously, this this war is more concentrated now in the south and in the east. But even communities that aren't are far away from it, I think they're just constantly living under that threat. And um, you can talk to someone on the street, uh, even with sort of polite, small talk conversation, and suddenly they start to cry. And you're just reminded that, like, the grief is just, you know, so visceral and, you know, that they have been living under this for a year. It's 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 hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. 365 days of living under that of just, yeah, you're right. The grief and, 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 and the, and the fear and the stress of it all. And again, it's not something we see a lot of. I mean, this is one of those wars where I know there's lots on social media, but we're not seeing a lot of the, I mean, we're seeing a lot of the destruction and a lot of the civilian deaths, but we're not seeing much of what's happening on the front lines. And, you know, it's, it's been in that sense, it's been a hard war to watch from afar because it's hard to see exactly what's happening to soldiers on the Ukrainian side, specifically to soldiers and, and to their families. And those stories aren't really being told for good reason. I imagine as far as Ukraine's concerned, but it is a part of, a, of the narrative of war that we're not hearing. Yeah, that's a great point. And, um, you know, there are news crews moving in and out uh, in areas like Bakhmut and the Donbass and the the front lines and, you know, where we were in Hurston. But, you know, it's also like in in many ways, this this conflict has sort of become protracted and 
uh, not a lot of territory changing hands in dramatic ways anymore. And, you know, I think when you're in Kiev, there's lots of reporters there from all over the world, but, you know, less so when you get closer to the front lines and, you know, perhaps that's part of, part of the issue too. I, I think, you know, it is, we, when we were in, um, Dnipro, uh, it had just been hit by, right. uh, there had been an apartment building that had just been hit by a Russian missile that killed dozens of people, including, I think, six children. And, uh, you know, met some people who'd lost family members there and met a girl, a little girl who was four years old named Katya. And you realize, like, she spent a quarter of her life like this now, right? Like, she's now of an age that she can, you know, sort of understand what's going on to a degree and that she has spent a quarter of her life you know, at night going down to the basement with her family when the air raid sirens sound. And, you know, we met, there was a baby in, in a maternity hospital and her son who was born uh, the same day that the hospital was hit. Uh, and the blast from the the rocket blew out every window in the neonatal unit, except for the room where this little baby, Paulina, was sleeping. And I met her mother and met her and she asked me if I wanted to hold the baby. And I, so I did, of course, and I'm sort of there holding her, looking at the sleeping baby. And there was like explosions happening in the distance and shelling happening nearby. And I mean, this is, you know, the baby was born into this war. You know, when it, when the drags on as long as it has, you start to think, you know, especially for, for young kids. I mean, this is like all they've known. Yeah. You see, any time anyone's anybody spent time in a war zone knows that when the war stops, when the fighting stops, the war is long from over. And you feel that watching Ukraine now after a year that this is going to take so long for them to build back and and build up again and find, you know, recover. I know this is a fight for survival, so it makes complete sense. But you think of the long-term implications on everyone who lives there and what that might look like in the future. Yeah. And, you know, the one thing on that point that I thought was was remarkable, and I, I'm not sure I expected to see this like after a year, is that the that sort of now world famous Ukrainian resilience and, and defiance and pride. I mean, that has not, you know, that has only grown. And you see it in opinion polls occasionally, too, where the number of Ukrainians who are not willing to give an inch of territory to Vladimir Putin, even if it would mean ending the war, has gone up, not down. And now, as I mean, the last time I saw opinion poll results on that, they were in the 90s, 90%. And uh, that's pretty amazing. And I mean, you see that in their eyes, you hear that in their voices, like these people, even interviewing people who have lost family members are not, you know, are angry and defiant, even more than they were in the early days of the war. Uh, and that, of course, has, you know, yeah, we hear the same sort of stuff from from Vladimir Zelensky, of course. About the fact that they're not willing to to give an inch, and that, of course, will have uh, implications for any potential negotiations and peace talks that you have. I think you know who knows what'll happen if and when we get to that point. But in a serious way, but you know, from the Ukrainians I've met, they are not willing to give an inch to Vladimir Putin, even if it meant bringing an end to the war. Jeff Simple, glad glad you're back, safe and sound. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Great to talk to you. 